Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am Neil Pollock. I am your host. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much, much more. The holiday movie season is upon us and we have reviews and discussions about a couple of big budget movies uh, coming out this week. Sarah Stewart will be here to talk to me about The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is a new movie in the Hunger Games series, a prequel of sorts. Not of sorts, it is a prequel to the Hunger Games, and that is out now and is quite quite fun. Also, Ridley Scott's Napoleon came out this week to much discussion and much fanfare, some fanfare. Uh, I have been looking forward to this movie, and I've been looking forward to talking to Stephen Garrett about this movie, and he will be along in a bit to talk to me about that. But first, we're going to talk about a book. Yes, it is Book and Film Globe, so we do talk about books sometimes. Michael Washburn is coming right up to talk to me about Julia, which is a an analog to George Orwell's 1984, told from the point of view of the book's female co-protagonist. Very interesting work of literature, and Michael and I have both read it and are going to discuss it right after these musical notes. The site is called Book and Film Globe, so we do occasionally write about books, and we talk about books sometimes. I know that we focus mostly on film and streaming TV, but books matter too. Uh, And an interesting thing happened last week. I I got an email from one of our contributors, Michael Washburn, saying he wanted to write about a new novel uh, called Julia, which is a, a retelling of 1984 from the point of view of its its female uh, co-protagonist and it just so happens that I had actually just put down my book my copy of Julia to check my phone and there was a message from uh, Michael uh, asking me uh, if he wanted a review of it so I was actually reading the book uh, at the moment that he, he wrote to me about and I have finished the book and I know Michael has finished the book and he's written about it on Book and Film Globe and he's here today to talk to me about this uh, compelling new retelling of 1984. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Hi. Yeah. So um, Julia is a very interesting book. I Well, first thing I'm going to say before we talk about anything else is there's a lot of sex in this book. A lot more. There's no sex as far as I can remember uh, in 1984. There might be some implied sex, but there, the, Julia is a book that is full of sex. So if you're expecting some sort of clean um, recap of the, you know, the struggles to against Big Brother, that Winston Smith and Julia undertake in 1984, you're not going to get that. It's very raunchy. There's a lot of sex and there's a lot of profanity and it's definitely raunchy. It's different from 1984 in that respect, even though it is expanded upon Orwell's dystopia. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is there are a lot of scenes in Julia that are uh, analogs, not analogs, they're retellings of famous scenes. Uh, in 1984, you know, the, the, the rat torture, the confession to O'Brien, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the change, uh, in, um, propaganda to, to, uh, being at war with a a different landmass, you know, all of that is in there, but there's, there's a lot more. I mean, well, you know, it's, it's from Julia's point of view. So you see, you don't really see, as far as I can recall, much of her life in 1984, uh, except for as she, uh, uh, interacts with Winston Smith. So here you have her, you know, staying in this kind of weird girl's derm- dormitory. You get a, a detailed uh, exposition on her sexual history, and you have her over, her 
own relationship with O'Brien, which I don't believe that 1984 goes into. Sandra Newman has done something really interesting here. She's engaged in a kind of creative extrapolation. She has taken the nightmare dystopia of 1984 and added many details, new tortures, new horrors, new monstrosities. In her novel, the party vaporizes dissidents. I don't remember them doing that in 1984. And certain of the inner party elite behave like Harvey Weinstein. They misuse their power and indeed their ability to terrorize others to gain romantic and sexual favors and to pursue a certain lifestyle, all under a pretense of ideological purity and dedication to Ingsoc. Newman's Julia is an interesting character. She doesn't particularly like living under this tyranny, but she has learned how to game the system. She takes members of the party lead as lovers and as well as people who are not powerful in the party, but who want to be with her. And some of them confess to her that they yearn for the party's downfall. Right. You know, it's, it's true. You know, and it, I think that it's an effective book in the sense that, you know, Orwell wasn't really concerned with gender relations when he wrote uh, 1984 in 1948. He was more concerned about exposing the horrors of the Soviet Union, basically, which, which he, uh, you know, cr- correctly uh, saw as a repressive system when a lot of Western intellectuals didn't. You know, obviously that is no longer uh, something that's ongoing. So, you know, Sandra Newman, I think it brings very contemporary concerns to this. And she, you know, she imagines what it would be like for a, a woman in such a system. And a, a lot of what women would have to offer in a system like this is is sex. And so I, um, you know, it's effective in that way. I wonder, you know, you talk about in your review, Michael, uh, about how uh, Newman talks about uh, the repression of the world in 1984 and that there are analogs to contemporary censorship and contemporary forms of, uh, you know, oppression and, and new speak. And I guess that's true to some extent, but I don't really, I didn't really get that from the book, right? Like I felt like Orwell was writing about the future, whereas the world that uh, Newman is writing about is, is the past, right? It's like takes place in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a warning as much as a, you know, reinterpretation of a classic work. I did not get the sense as I was reading this novel that the enemy here is the patriarch. I really believe, as I said before, that Newman expands on Orwell's dystopian vision of a repressive socialist society where the state controls every facet of life and watches what people do, and no one is allowed to dissent, no one is allowed to speak out, no one is allowed to express different opinions from those of the party. And Julia's sexuality, which you talked about, yes, that's a very important part of the story. But I didn't really get the sense that Newman here is a feminist in the trenches and that Julia embodies this ideal of repressed female independence and and sexuality. I thought that she used her sexuality to try to get around some of the abuses and control of Ingsoc. And that was the real struggle that's going on in the story. Yeah, I don't think the book is dogmatic, dogmatically feminist in the way that you're describing. But I mean, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a, you know, a gruesome scene early on uh, where a young woman has an abortion and, and Julia has to clean up the mess, literally clean up the mess in the bathroom. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a lot of stuff about um, people being artificially inseminated with the seed of big brother. Uh, and uh, you know, there's, there's a lot in there that you're, you're just, you're just not going to 
So I don't know. I mean, I just I, I couldn't really parse exactly what Newman's politics were. And maybe that's her, a testament to her as an artist, because this is a very well-written, very compelling, thought-provoking take on a classic work of literature. I was just trying to I, I was just having a hard time figuring out what she was doing with it, like what she was trying to uh, get across. Well, you know, there has been some controversy recently about what Orwell himself really believed and whether he was a left-leaning intellectual who had kind of a very ambiguous uh, or ambivalent attitude towards socialism or whether he was a committed socialist who wanted to warn people about some of its more extreme iterations and the dangers of where it could lead. There was this book by an academic, Peter Stansky, that came out almost a year ago that took up this question, and Stansky argued that Orwell was very much a committed socialist to the end of his life, though he wanted to warn people about the dangers of Soviet-style totalitarianism and Stalinism. And I wrote a review of that book for National Review in which I disputed Stansky's argument, and I brought out some counter-evidence from Orwell's own journalism. And I think what Newman is doing here is she's saying Orwell really understood the slippery slope that socialism represents and where we are going to end up if we start to slide down that slope. And you think the world described in 1984 is bad. Well, here are some things that logically follow from what Orwell showed us in 1984. So as bleak and disturbing and horrible as the world of 1984 was, Orwell had distances still to travel in fleshing out the full horror of totalitarianism. And that's what Newman does here in scene after scene after scene. It's an incredibly bleak book, and that's where its power comes from. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bleak. It's bleaker than 1984, which kind of almost felt like a myth or metaphor, you know, in a lot of ways, whereas this book does not. It feels like a, uh, you know, a modern telling of a, of a horrific dystopia. And you know, one thing about this book that really stuck in my mind, that's the portrayal of O'Brien. In some ways, he strikes me as a tragic character. He is intelligent, but ruthless to the point that he's willing to place a cage full of ravenous rats around Winston's head. One of the intriguing things about this novel is that it doesn't really give Pat answers as to what makes O'Brien tick. We get more of an explication of his ideology in 1984. In Julia, we see him acting in his own self-interest, and it's not really clear what element in his psyche has the upper hand. So he's very interesting. He's intriguing, and he's, as I said, an enigma. Yeah, I felt I found this whole book very enigmatic, and in fact, the ending um, is quite uh, how would you say it? it's ambiguous. You know, it's it. it I don't want to give too much away, but you think that, you know, Julia might be actually be getting free of the repression of the society. And then the ending indicates that eh, maybe it's not, she's not as free as she thinks she is. Um, and so I found that, uh, you know, the ending to be uh, both uh, you know, very interesting and somewhat hopeful, but also kind of depressing. It is depressing because you know what Newman does. There is this famous scene in 1984 where Winston thinks that he's being interviewed by a member of the Goldsteinite resistance, and he has to answer questions like, would you be willing to commit acts that would result in the deaths of innocent people? And he affirms, not because he really would do those things if put to the test, but because he thinks this is what he has to say in order to pass the interview. And then when Julia escapes to free Britain in Newman's novel, 
she has to answer that exact same set of questions. So this is not just rules that the party interrogators came up with. These are actually questions that the resistance will ask people. So that is a very, very disturbing thing to contemplate. Yeah. And it, and it um, you know, sort of indicates that maybe uh, even if uh, the regime of Big Brother is toppled, that it s- seems somewhat clear at the end of the book that it will be that the actual uh, repression uh, that people experience in society will will continue. So I don't know. Again, like this is not a a, you know, moment for moment uh, analog of our contemporary society. You can see some reflections of things that we're undergoing right now in it. But it is, I, I think, a very it's a very interesting work of art in, in that it, it does not it does not provide any kind of clear answers. And it does you know, it feels like there's no way this book could have been written in 1948, for instance, you know. Uh, it, it's definitely a, a book in the now. And um, I wonder, I kind of, I just wonder what Orwell would think of it. I, I think he might be, he might be interested in it. I very much doubt that it would have been published in 1948. I think it would have been way ahead of its time. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have made any sense to some people, you know, they're like, what, you, 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 some of those, some of the topics that Newman discusses were very taboo back then. Anyway, it's an interesting book. Uh, and Michael uh, Washburn has written a, a great review of it on Book and Film Globe. Michael, thank you so much for stopping by for uh, sort of the, I guess, what's the equivalent of our book club? It's my pleasure. I'm not built like other men. I will not lead a second in command. I will win by fire. I am destined for greatness. I found the crown of France in the gutter and placed it atop my own head. Last week, I had one of the best movie-going experiences of the year. I went to see Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World at uh, the New Beverly Theater in Los Angeles. I was visiting friends, uh, family for the weekend there, and uh, there was a 20th anniversary screening of Master and Commander, and it starts with the great famous title card, April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. And the crowd erupted in applause when that title card came up. The crowd did not erupt in applause uh, for Napoleon, the Ridley Scott, uh, Napoleon, which I saw last night. I've been waiting for this movie. I've been waiting for this movie like it was my birthday, Stephen Garrett. Uh, You were excited. There have been few. I mean, I was sort of... I was ironic, sort of ironically excited, but I was also kind of excited. It's like, oh, look, it's, it's a Napoleon movie. You know, all, there's only been, like, in my lifetime, I, I, ironic Napoleon. You know, there's, been, like, you know, Bugs Bunny Napoleon, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure Napoleon, you know, funny funny Napoleon. Um, and this was, like, uh, finally, you're going to see some see some history. I know there were some historical Napoleon movies made in the, in the 50s, um, but most historical movies made in that era, you know, feel very dated now. So here we're going to see a modern Napoleon done by the occasional master of the historical melodrama, Ridley Scott. And so here it is, Napoleon. Ridley Scott's Napoleon is here, and Stephen and I have both seen it. So I don't know, Stephen. I mean, this is not a masterpiece of a film, I, I would say. Uh, I still got a, I still got a funny Napoleon. I, I oh yeah, a lot of funny Napoleon. Destiny has brought me this lamb chop. Joaquin Phoenix yeah. says, well, not, well, not, not really hagiographic. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it, it, that's the thing is like, you know, I, it was, he was a weird little man <laughs> in this movie. 
Um, and <laughs> he was, and maybe in real life, it seems probably waddling around like a penguin, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and my favorite shot, glowering, oh, glower, so much glowering. My favorite shot was when the, he goes to Moscow, and and the Russians have abandoned it. Um, he sits in, uh, he, sit, <laughs> he just pouts in the uh, in the emperor's chair, just pouting. And that, that was my, and that just that shot was so good, and his his expression was was so great. And then he has bird crap drip dripping on him from yeah. the roof rafters. Yeah, all the bird crap on the on the on the throne is pretty good. Uh, the battle scenes I thought were amazing. The Battle of Austerlitz was incredible. The Battle of Austerlitz was one of the great set pieces. Um, it did not disappoint. One of the great set pieces in modern cinema, the Battle of Waterloo, was tremendous, tremendously good and tense and well, well staged and you know well choreographed and really nice, well shot. And also that that was helped by that was Rupert Everett, right, as the Duke of uh, Wellington there at the end, if I'm not mistaken. Apparently, I, I wish uh, I wish I'd been reminded of that when I was watching it because I, I didn't think to look for him and he did not look like his handsome, wrath, brackish, roguish self that we're used to. Right, but I mean that I thought you know whoever that was, I do believe it was Rupert Everett gave uh, you know sort of brought a late it is. yeah it brought a late um, late movie gravitas you know he didn't come in till the end and and he was I thought he was terrific and he made for a great antagonist. Uh, for Napoleon, and he had a lot of, um, you know, just uh, he really carried the movie with some with some weight. And uh, I don't know. I mean, okay, maybe I did like it. I don't know if I loved. It. I didn't love it beyond all loving it. You know, I, I think I, I haven't written the review yet. Uh, I, I was so exhausted uh, by the emotional experience of seeing Napoleon that I, I slept until almost uh, ten a.m. Um, so I haven't I haven't written yet, but I, I you know I I could give it a four I could give it four stars. The battle the battle scenes were good and exciting. You know if you like uh, horses being blown up, this is a good movie. Oh my god! That right at the beginning, that first where they take over the uh, the harbor and the you know uh, Napoleon's horse gets a cannonball right in the chest. Good lord, that was gross. And then remember, he has somebody dig out, or does he himself dig out the cannonball from the horse's chest? Yeah, he does. He digs out the the cannonball from the horse's chest. So you know, cool. yeah. I mean, it's it's memorable. And there's also a you know the so there's two parts of the movie. There's an, sort of Napoleon as as the general and the the pouty uh, leader of France, and then there is Napoleon the the cuckold um, and his his weird relationship <laughs> with with Josephine, who I thought played by Vanessa Kirby, who was who was excellent. You know, she you know they don't they don't. Uh, you know, pussyfoot around, so to speak. Uh, Josephine, uh, you know, she uh, she gets out of prison. She gets out of the Bastille, and where she has been spending several years, you know, trading sec- sexual favors for money, basically to survive. I mean, it's the central relationship of the movie. It's the only real relationship he has, and it's you know, it's not uh, it's not a good one. It's it's very it's very messed up. It is. It's very messed up. I mean, you know, I, it's interesting. I felt like Ridley Scott. You called him a with the master of historical dramas or sometimes master, I, I would say very rarely the master. I don't know. I was never a huge fan of Gladiator. I think that's probably the the one that people consider his best historical drama, right? It's certainly not Empire of, what was it? The Kingdom of Heaven? Kingdom of Heaven. Or that Robin Hood one. Yeah, maybe. and then there was The Last um, Duel. Last Duel was fun. But that's the thing. I feel like he's gotten this, he's come up with a, a kind of an interesting sort of straight British camp take in his latest movies like house of gucci and the last duel 
and now Napoleon. It's very strange. There's some very earnest, sincere things, and then some hilariously campy, funny, unexpectedly weird moments. And I mean, the way that he plays, he portrays Bonaparte from the first time we see him to basically the last shot where he kind of keels over, literally. I mean, he just looks like a fool, a frustrated, sexually frustrated fool, glowering, who's never satisfied by anything he's able to conquer, or even by the idea of conquering anything. It never satisfies him. He's just an unsatisfied, unhappy person, right? Yeah, it's a very, he's a very strange character. And, and again, like, you got to feel like um, this, is, this is a British man making a Napoleon movie, right? Napoleon is, is not... Uh, he's got a bit of an agenda. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, Napoleon did establish, you know, these unified legal codes for France, and he did sort of, in, in some weird way, kind of stabilize the country after years of, of violent revolution. And he was also a genocidal monster. No, he wasn't genocidal. But he was also a, um, you know, a monster in some ways who ended up killing three thousand, three three million people in his in his campaigns, right? So, right, right. to say he has a complicated legacy is is understating it a bit. But um, yeah, you're you're right that you know Scott definitely like this is not a hagiography by any means. So I'm curious though because I you I think are much more certainly much more of a history a, a scholar of history a history buff I I am very ignorant of these things so I went into Napoleon really pretty blind and I'm curious you know I I didn't I, as soon as you start seeing these lower thirds appear under this character or that character kind of explaining oh this is an admiral here or this is a general consult or this this diplomat or ambassador I'm just like man I'm missing a lot of stuff and a lot of lower thirds explaining. This is this battle or that battle. Um, I felt like this is a, probably a much more rewarding experience for people who are knowledgeable about Napoleon. And I was really in the dark about so much uh, and didn't get a sense of why from the film. You didn't get a sense of why the people loved him so much or why he was important. It just seemed like battle, battle, sexually frustrated Josephine, battle, battle. Suddenly he's in exile. And then he decides, nah, I'm done with exile. I'm coming back. Battle, battle. So how did, that was the movie I saw. How, what was the movie you saw? That was the movie I saw. But the thing about Napoleon is that <laughs> no, the, the, but the thing about Napoleon is that he was a, um, you know, in some ways was like a liberal reformer, right? He, he he was not a he was not a royalist. He was not a monarchist. So he had uh, a following among regular people because he set up society uh, to their advantage to some extent, even while his main focus was conquest and and military adventuring right so i think that i think he had a popular touch the movie was not particularly concerned with that and to be fair the establishment of the napoleonic codes would make for a pretty boring movie as opposed <laughs> to you know his endless quest to get it up in josephine you know and then betray her when she can't bear him a son or the battle of waterloo you know one of the most iconic uh, ba battles in military history i mean you can't really um you know, you have to do that and you have to do it for 20 minutes or else no one's going to Napoleon to see him like, uh, you know, establish a, a new, a, codify some laws, you know, <laughs> to, reor to reorganize the French bureaucracy. Like that's not, that's not very interesting. But I, but I, could I, could I, could have proposed though that like, it's not interesting or Ridley Scott wasn't interested in making it interesting because there have been movies that I've seen that are historical dramas that give that kind of context. Well, it's not cinematic. Yeah, yeah maybe. I don't know. I do feel, you know, there was a movie called Peterloo that, um, 
came out a few years ago. With the Mike Lee movie. Yeah. And it's, you know, you see long scenes of people debating and orating about civil society and the organization of political parties. And I found it quite riveting. So I think it might be one of those situations. It felt like Ridley Scott just wanted to direct big army set pieces and big battle scenes. And he, because that's, those are the times where I was just literally blown away. Not literally, but you know, no pun intended. And he was interested in the kinky relationship between him and Josephine, but everything else he wasn't, right? But that's all anybody who really goes to see a movie about Napoleon wants. They want to see, you know, weird, (laughs) weird, perverted Napoleon and Josephine stuff. And they want to see Austerlitz and Waterloo and the Russia campaign, uh, which all of which we got. Um, and you know, that, 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 that little bit where they were ambushed by, um, the Mongols, I mean, they look or the, you know, they, that sort of Asian militia, the Russia's Asian militia there. Uh, that was, that was an excellent scene as well. You know, so all that stuff I thought was really effective and really fun. And, um, if you like big battle scenes, if you've always longed like me to see the battle of Austerlitz <laughs> on the big screen, you've got it. It's beautifully done. It's amazing. It's magnificent. There's a great battle scenes and there's some classic camp in it. <laughs> yep. You know, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is is divisive. It's going to be divisive, but it's also um it's incredibly like memorable <laughs> to say the least. I and I appreciate and really enjoyed all those things. I just for me, I wish there were a bit more context about why Napoleon was beloved by his people and maybe just a, a, a like a sous-saw of Napoleonic code so that you'd understand, oh, no, no, this guy actually was kind of brilliant beyond the battlefield and beyond. And certainly certainly wasn't that great in bed, right? But apparently not. You know, he did some other things aside from kill people. He liked to, he liked to grunt from behind uh, in bed, apparently. Uh, but I think that it's possible. There's a four-hour version of this coming out on Apple TV eventually. And it's possible that that extra hour and a half or whatever is going to be like, is going to give you the context you want. Well, so here's, here's my question. Somebody said, you know, you mentioned four hours. So technically it's under that, right? Two hours and 40 minutes or so. But I hear there is a longer version, right? And maybe that's the one that would satisfy me more. Maybe that has the Napoleonic code in it. So there you go, Stephen Garrett. Four hours of Napoleon coming soon to Apple TV. <laughs> the Snyder Cut. Someday, someday you're going to be a Napoleon expert. You're going to you're going to die a Napoleon expert. You're going to die on the battlefield, a Napoleon expert. <laughs> Ridley Scott's Napoleon is in theaters now. Like I said, if you've always wanted to see the Battle of Waterloo on the big screen, but not have to actually be in the Battle of Waterloo uh, yourself, this is it. It's here. It's finally come. My dream has been fulfilled. All right, Stephen. Talk to you soon. I've never seen those birds before. Mockingjays, we call them. Your role is to turn these children into spectacles, not survivors. We're live! We either cross that line into evil or not. I never thought I'd say this phrase, but there's a new Hunger Games movie in theaters. This week, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, uh, recently uh, premiered uh, to uh, global audiences. Uh, Hunger Games is a global franchise. And Sarah Stewart wrote about it for us on Book and Film Globe. I also saw this film. I saw it today as we're talking. Uh, Hello, Sarah. Hello. Hello. Yes. So you gave this movie a very positive uh, review for us. And I got to say, you know, it was was pretty good. (laughs) It was pretty good. It was pretty good. I mean, I feel like I... 
I feel like I went in with a fairly low bar, Neil. I got to admit, you sure. know, I read the book and and I hadn't seen a Hunger Games movie in a while, and I just my memory of it is of Jennifer Lawrence being very very tired at the end of it, and I also felt very very tired at the end of it. Yeah, those movies are long. They're very long, you know, and they went on to they were, they split the last one into two needlessly, and it was all just dragged out. But uh, this one, you know, hope springs anew, maybe. It had some, it had a, it had its own personality. I mean, it's still a Hunger Games movie. So, you know, there is a Hunger Games in it, <laughs> a very brutal game, uh, which is about a third of the movie. And then there's the lead up to it where they have to recruit all the tributes. And then, then there's kind of a long coda. Well, I think the coda, that was my problem with this. I think the coda went on a little bit too long. The third act was, as third acts tend to be, was a little extended, but I don't know. I mean, I, I found it uh, extremely uh, appealing and, you know, because, I had not read the the prequel. I wasn't exactly sure how it was all going to play out, and I felt like uh, you know it everything made sense within the context of that crazy world, that crazy dystopian world. So I guess we should talk a little bit about what it's about. It's like an origin story for President Snow, who's the I guess the main villain of the Hunger Games movies, the Donald Sutherland character. I don't know that actor. Who, who's the guy who plays him? His name is Tom Blythe. I don't know that he's done that much else that we would really know about. I guess he's in a show called Billy the Kid. I've never seen it. My uh, my dad, who I dragged to see the movie with me, thought he was more of a ringer for uh, young Jimmy Stewart than for young Donald Sutherland, which I, I think is, is kind of true. But he does kind of get the, like... He gets he gets something about the Sutherlandiness. I, I think it's it's believable enough. Um, and I, and and I think he brings this sort of a I don't know kind of a close to the vest emotionality about his circumstances. Like you're not, you're not quite sure which way he's going to go. He's a he's a child of uh, you know a once a once powerful family that's been brought low by a rebel uprising that destroyed Pan Am, which is this uh, Pan Am is the is the is the city, right? That's the no Pan Am is the country. It's the country. Oh, Pan Am is the country. Okay. Pan Am is a country, and then the city is... Is the capital. Capital. Is the capital. So it's like the Pan Am is sort of an ersatz United States or England, or, you know, it could be... Everyone's got an American accent, so let's just say... Let's yeah. just say the United States. Yeah, and, you know, I thought... I don't... I didn't think, like, he was incredibly... You know, his acting was not, like, extraordinary or anything, but he, but he definitely was, like, nice to look at. <laughs> you know, he held the screen, big blue eyes... Um, it was never unwatchable and that's important because he's the main character and there's a lot of him, but, but like you mentioned in your review, the real standout of the movie is Rachel Zegler who plays Lucy Gray Baird, who's sort of our, our Katniss Eberdeen uh, stand in. She's the sort of the uh, moral conscience of, of this particular hunger games, but she's not the same kind of character as, as Katniss Eberdeen. She's not. A, she's a like a like a troubadour, like a roving musician who gets sucked into this. She's a troubadour, and she's from a family of um, what do we call them here in the United States? Like travelers, I think. Yeah, you know, yeah. She's sort of an itinerant family. Roma- the, we don't call them gypsies anymore. We we'll call them romans. We don't romans, right? But yeah, but that type, and they're like they're traveling musicians, and you know, they they live in you know the District Twelve, which is where she uh, ends up getting sucked into the Hunger Games. Is kind of like it's kind of like Appalachia, and yes. so the music. In the movie, and there's a lot of it, it sounds a lot like um, country music or Appalachian folk music. Like really good Appalachian folk music. I mean, I was shocked. It was just real. I mean, I went back. I've, I've searched out the songs and listened to them since I've seen the movie. They're real catchy. 
Yeah, they're very catchy. And I think it really like it gives the movie some emotional heft because, well, first of all, you know, Rachel Zegler, if you don't know who she is, she was, she kind of came to public attention as, uh, as Maria in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. And she was good in that, but she was fine. But I, but I feel like this, this role, she really sinks her teeth into. And this is her, I think her real breakout performance. Absolutely. I mean, it, what it reminded me more than anything is I, I'm going to forget the name of it. But do you remember that Jesse Buckley movie where she stars? Yes. In the, like, Wild movie Rose. Movie? Wild Rose. Yes. Wild Rose. That was yes. the vibe that I got off of her. I mean, I just, she's a real talent and she's, you know, she's, she's very talented. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. She's a very talented uh, musician yeah. and singer. And also I felt like her performance, you know, that character is very ambiguous that, uh, Lucy Gray Baird. You don't really know what she's up to the whole time. That's right. That's right. And yeah, and and as much as uh, Coriolanus Snow, which what a terrible name, really. Um, you know, as much as we don't quite know what's going on with him, we also don't really know what's going on with her. But it's clear that both of them understand how to harness the power of media, which is kind of the point of the Hunger Games, is to you know attract viewers and to you know, and to win the games through appealing to public sentiment and getting people to send you aid and, and root for you. And, and both of them through their very different backgrounds um, really understand this. Yeah. And they understand each other to some extent and they kind of yeah. use, and they kind of use each other to survive and also do advance and do whatever they have political aims. Okay. So let's, let's talk about um, some of the supporting characters. Cause that's always what made, especially the first hunger games uh, fun. You know, in this one, you have Viola Davis really chewing the scenery as the uh, minister, as yeah. the main bad guy. She was quite good. Uh, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage, uh, it plays, uh, kind of plays the, um, a bit the, typecast, I would say. Yeah, oh, but. sure. What, but he can do that role in his sleep. But he kind of, kind of fulfills the Philip Seymour Hoffman role. And then, but to me, my favorite, uh, let's say, famous guest star was uh, Jason Schwartzman. Uh, Schwartzman. He so was, good. He, he was, I mean, you know, he played the Stanley Tucci role. And you know, yeah. like he was Stanley Tucci's father or something. Same last name of Flickerman. And he was hilarious and smarmy and great. And not least, I mean, we needed a little bit of humor. I mean, this movie is very dark. Very. Very darker, I would argue, than like most of the other Hunger Games movies. Well, because there's no hope. Mostly because it doesn't have the opulence. There's no opulence. Yeah, Yeah, it's like the the capital is a ruin, um, barely coming back. And the Hunger Games themselves are very gritty. They just take place in a, they take place in a bomb damaged Coliseum, essentially. And the tributes are not trained. They're not dressed up in costumes. They're just these, like, sick, poor kids from the districts who have been scooped up, thrown on freight trains, which is pretty, you know, evocative of an image. And then dumped in a zoo. And dumped in a zoo for people to look at before they are forced to fight to the death in the games. It's, it's for two days. Horrifying. For two days. Yeah, there's no there, there's no ceremony. Well, because, the you know, the whole point of the, of the movie is that the Hunger Games are, you know, not really yet established. The ratings are low. People are going to getting, getting sick of it. And so they, you know, they, they fig, kind of figure out a way to make it into more of a reality show. Right. And they're trying to gin up ratings. They're trying to figure out how to parlay this into something, you know, they're trying to make a, you know, a, a, the bachelor or a love is blind out of, uh, you know, the golden bachelor. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. They, they, well, they're, they're trying to make it into the hunger games essentially. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I feel like, um, I mean, look, this is like, there's a lot going on in this movie. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of heavy 
material. And, you know, I think to this film's credit, you know, I, I have not seen as much praise uh, for this movie as you and I are heaping upon it. And let's be mm -hmm. clear, it's still like a teen melodrama. There's still like kind of corny side plots that, that don't really pan out and it goes on two or three beats too long. It's not perfect, but I, I found myself at least near the edge of my seat, if not on it a lot of the time. And I went in really dreading the two hour, 45 minute running time. I do not like a movie that long. And I, I really didn't notice it. I thought it, it really, most of it went by quite quickly, except as you said, the, the long coda at the end when they, they escape to district 12 and they're out in the country and there's this sort of romance that you don't quite buy. And there's a very indeterminate ending um, that I'm not sure that we really needed in as much detail and um, length as we have. Well, I think they're, they're trying to leave it open for some sort of, you know, songbirds and snake snake sequel but i don't think that would yeah. work i think this works as i think that this works as a standalone origin story for president snow and to you know i gotta say you gotta you gotta give suzanne collins who wrote the hunger games uh books props for like you know creating a world that was vibrant enough that compare this to the harry potter prequels you know the fantastic beasts and where to find them this is much better much better much more entertaining and and you know satisfyingly more connected to the source material. And I also want to mention, I, Francis Lawrence, I, I just read, um, regrets having broken up the last two Hunger Games movies into two and, and decided to just shove it all into one movie uh, here, which I think was the right decision. I don't think we need two movies. I think this was a good call. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that was that was also the time where they were splitting the final Harry Potter up into two movies. And and I don't I mean, they did it to Mission Impossible, this new Mission Impossible movie, and I was I was annoyed by that. So, um, yeah, Twilight. But yeah, but this, but but yeah, so we're sort of past that sort of peak YA yeah. culture thing. So this is this is just kind of almost like a nostalgic throwback to it. But it's it's pretty good. You you could do worse at the movies for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I oh I've done done worse this week alone. So you know, <laughs> it, it's it's always possible. I mean, I, I I have um I've been panning movies left and right the last couple of weeks. So. So The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, it's a Hunger Games prequel movie starring um, some people you've heard of and some people you haven't. And, uh, you know, I, uh, Sarah and I say check it out. All right. Thank you, Sarah Stewart. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the new Hunger Games movie, is in theaters now. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for phoning in to talk to me about Ridley Scott's Napoleon in theaters now, and a longer version of it will be available on Apple TV Plus at some point in the near future. And thanks to Michael Washburn for taking some time out to talk to me about Julia by Sandra Newman, a new novel uh, set in the world of 1984. The 1984 expanded universe is upon us. I am Neil Pollock. I am your host. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com Happy holidays everyone Please continue to listen to the show And read the sites You can stay on top of all the doings In the worlds of books and film And streaming TV And I will talk to you soon Original Production